Our Father, we are so thankful to you for the holidays that we've had. Truly, we trust that for each of us they were holy days, days in which we particularly focused on the reality of our relationship with you, of the coming of Christ to earth to become Emmanuel. And Father, we recognize that Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts if we are true believers. And it's that, that faith, that hope that we have that enables us to be one with one another as the church. Now, Father, we pray that you will specifically bless us in our study this hour. We trust you to bless the church service, which is underway in the other building, that you'll be very present here, and you will be pleased to accomplish your will amongst us. In Christ's name, amen. Before I uh, <clears throat> begin the actual lesson, I want to make mention, some of you probably have seen this article that was in U.S. News and World Report, came out about a week or so before Christmas. I quoted to you from an article, a little brief article that was in the record searchlight having to do with the Gallup poll. Well, what's interesting was that we noted that the Gallup poll as reported in the record searchlight was only a portion of the poll and was quite biased. This gives the whole poll results in here, and they sound a little different when you read them from this. They mentioned the point in the newspaper that 65% of those without a high school degree were those who believed in a specific special creation, that uh, literal interpretation of Genesis. They failed to mention, though, that 25% of all college graduates hold to that same position. That puts a little different color on the whole thing. And what's interesting is from the poll, as they reported here, only 16% of college graduates believe in atheistic evolution. 16%. Now that was being taught very specifically as such before I ever entered college, which was a while back. And so it's been going on for a long time, at least a half a century this has been happening, and yet only 16% of college graduates actually accept uh, the atheistic version that God had nothing to do with it, that it's just all here by chance. That's kind of interesting when you think about it. Now, it's true that according to this, about half of all college graduates believe in evolution, but they believe that God is responsible for it, the so-called uh, theistic evolution or one of those versions. Uh, this poll goes on to say that 53% of all women believe in strict creationist view whereas only 39% of men. Whites, 46%. Blacks, 53% hold to the strict creationist point of view. Whereas you go to the opposite end, the naturalist point of view, only 4% of blacks and 9% of whites hold to that particular position. I felt it was kind of interesting. The article has several other things to say that I'd like to just uh, read little excerpts from to... Uh, give us a little more grist in our mill here. Uh, they're talking here about the extremes, uh, between the extremes on both sides, the religious fundamentalists who dismiss evolution as a satanic deception, and the atheistic naturalists who assert that science offers the only window on reality and who seek to discredit religious belief. At least one small denomination, the 400,000 member Christian Reformed Church, is on the verge of a schism over the issue. 
Conservatives are set to pull out in large part because of the teaching of evolution in science classes at Calvin College, the denomination's liberal arts college in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is a quotation. It's just another symptom of the low view of scripture in that denomination, says the Reverend Audred Sprinsma of South Holland, Illinois, an officer of one of the conservative groups breaking from the church. Calvin College, by the way, has been sort of the fountainhead of a lot of this. Uh, many of the textbooks that deal with theistic evolution come out or were written by uh, science professors at Calvin College. Although religion and science have a long history of conflict, they have not always been at odds. In the West, early science grew out of a decidedly religious impulse to understand God and his relationship with man. The biblical picture of an orderly creation by a dependable God gave impetus to scientific inquiry. The universe made sense because it was overseen by a supreme intelligence who made mathematical description and prediction possible. The article goes on to say that uh, all this began to change with Nicholas Copernicus. And if you remember, Copernicus was a Pole who in studying the heavens, decided that the earth was not the center of the universe, but was simply a planet going around the sun. Now, at that time, that was considered heresy because the Roman Catholic Church, which was the dominant church, that was an article of faith with them. And so when that changed, that was considered to be a slap in the face of religious dogma. But there's something very important that we need to note that makes that so different from the modern theory of evolution, and that is that the Bible does not in any place say that the earth is the center of the solar system. The Bible makes no point about where the sun is relative to the earth in terms of how this all operates. So Copernicus was simply describing reality, which is provable. It's what they call falsifiable. You can actually prove whether it's true or false. Evolution, on the other end, is non-falsifiable. You can't prove it one way or the other. And scripture is very specific about this. The whole first part of the book of Genesis is, is in great detail, which makes nonsense to me anyway, uh, if it's not true. Uh, so uh, to me, there's no comparison between what Copernicus did and what supposedly that caused the break between science and religion. And, and Darwin and others and the theory uh, that has come later on, there's, there's no comparison between the two. The one is uh, Bible has something to do with, the other one doesn't. Thomas Huxley, an associate of Darwin's who expounded on the theological implications of evolution, that man was not a unique creation of God at all, but derived from animal ancestors. That becomes the crux of the whole argument of uh, modern evolutionary theory. Late in the article, we read this. More prevalent among religious scientists, though less so amongst conservative theologians and clergy, is theist theistic evolution. The view that evolutionary theory is basically correct and that life on earth, including humanity, evolved over millions of years. But unlike the naturalists, theists consider the evolutionary process, like all other physical processes detectable by science, to be divinely governed. In this view, held by much of mainline Protestantism, which would mean, of course, your Methodist church, your Episcopal church, Presbyterian church, and so forth, Reform and conservative Judaism and Roman Catholicism 
The Genesis account is understood as speaking metaphorically of the relationship between God and creation rather than as a scientific or historical account of how and when creation occurred. Then finally, in the last part of the article, <clears throat> Philip Johnson, a Berkeley law professor in his book Darwin on Trial, attacks the dogmatism of some scientists who, he says, present evolution as a religion. While attempting to distance himself from creation literalists, he focuses on what he describes as weak spots in the evidence for evolution. Atheistic naturalism, says Johnson, is not merely the conclusion that neo-Darwinists draw from their scientific theory, but rather the metaphysical basis of the theory itself. Science devoid of values, says Rosemary Radford Ruther, the theology professor at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, gives rise, gave rise to demonic uses of technology in Auschwitz and Hiroshima. Today, she says, science cannot afford to ignore the question of values. Scientists must learn humility, says, and there's a big long name here, He's a Polish professor, and neither his first or his last name is, to me, pronounceable. Uh, professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. He says, scientists must learn humility and be ready to see our conclusions as temporary and open to challenge. After World War II, he says, the scientific community became overly optimistic that science and technology had the power to liberate human beings from the mental shackles that old-fashioned religion, political ideology, and morality had imposed. But he says they missed an important aspect of human psychology that earlier religious approaches had recognized, that left to, his, to its own devices, human consciousness is typically in a state of chaos and conflict. Though that's not exactly empirical evidence for original sin, says this professor, it is clear that the human psyche is by nature more disordered than some optimistic scientists would have it. To me, the upshot of the whole article is that there is no proof in the scientific realm at all of uh, evolution or that this whole approach is at all accurate. So for theistic evolutionists to kind of go overboard in accepting scientists is for them to be high and dry 20 years down the line when they discover something else in the area of science, which negates the whole view that has been in vogue for the past hundred years. It's kind of interesting as looking at this, I kind of jotted out on a little piece of paper what I feel is sort of the position that a person can hold along a continuum relative to the, this concept of how man got here. If a person has an opinion he or she probably is either a literal creationist, which means we literally believe that the passages in Genesis that we're studying are, are history, or he or she is a non-literal creationist, having to do with this metaphysical approach, not, not metaphysical, metaphorical approach to the first part of Genesis, the kind of age, day, ideal time, multiple gap theory type approach. Or a person is a non-religious, non-Darwinian evolutionist. And there are many today who do not accept Darwin's approach at all. Uh, they believe that man has evolved, but the, the process is not Darwinian. It's not the survival of the fittest concept, but some call it punctuated evolution. Other 
different names. Then a, a fourth position is agnostic evolutionist. Yes, there's evolution, but who in the world knows how it happened? That's probably more honest than many. Uh, then comes the theistic evolutionist who, who holds that God did it all, but it's done exactly the way science portrays it. And then finally, the atheistic evolutionist who uh, holds that God had nothing to do with it. In fact, there is no God. In fact, one of the, uh, oh, I forgot to read that part in the article, a professor of theology at university or at uh, Harvard Divinity School, which is hardly evangelical, makes a statement that we ought to remove God from creation altogether and just refer to creation as serendipitous. <laughs> and that uh, God himself is in the process of evolving, changing, which of course flies directly in the face of scripture, which says God is immutable, unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, the whole point of it is, I think, that even as you look at an article like this, hey, it's not cut and dried, it's not all settled. And there's no reason that if you happen to believe that the first part of the book of Genesis is, is literal history, there's no reason to roll over and say, I give up because, uh, you know, all the weight of science is against me. No, it's not. It simply is not a closed book. It's still an open book, and the process is going on, and the ultimate answers are not yet in. All right, if you'll turn to your outline uh, on page 10, we were uh, on number four, a little over, just under halfway down the page, where it says Eve came from Adam and the miraculous creation of Eve, she being bone of and flesh of Adam. Now, I asked the question at the end of class last time, why is it that God didn't just make Eve out of the dust of the earth as he did Adam? Why did he choose to take a portion of Adam and make Eve out of the side of, of Adam. And I think the answer, as I indicated, is Im implied at least in verses 22 and 23, where Adam specifically says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. And this word translated man here is the first time in the passage that the word Adam or Adam is not used. Uh, it's ish, which is the typical Hebrew word for male, a male of the species. And it says that isha, which is the female of the species, was taken out of ish. So it becomes a generalized statement here, not just specific to Adam and Eve. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. So in this case, obviously, Eve is literally flesh and bone of Adam. They are of literally one flesh. Now I think the point here is that in their unity of marriage, you not only have the concept of unity, the concept of we being one flesh in marriage, but in this case, the reality of it in, in, in a physical sense. And this particular condition, of course, was not what would ultimately prevail in terms of how each individual came about. Subsequently, of course, all men would be born out of a woman. So Eve was unique in this sense. But she becomes the pattern or the example with Adam of what marriage is really about. There is a complete unity in marriage. 
We literally become one flesh in God's eyes just as if we had been taken out of one another. It's just as real for us today as it was for Adam and Eve in terms of the way God views it. And that's why, as you've heard so many times, marriage cannot be viewed as a 50-50 deal. You know, I'll do my part if you do your part. It's a 100% commitment on the part of each person. We've got to be 100% committed to this relationship, irrespective of what the other person does or does not do. That's the way God wants it to be. And of course, as we see marriage in, in the world today, that's not how it is. The statistics show that uh, for every two marriages, there's one divorce. Now, true, certain individuals go through multiple divorces and skew the figures. But in California, they claim there's a divorce for every marriage. That doesn't mean every marriage ends in a divorce, of course. But uh, it's happening even within the church, as we well know. Now, there are several, I think, important points that need to be made here relative to this. First of all, Eve was taken from Adam's side. And we've all heard the, the little poem about it wasn't from his head and wasn't from his foot and was from his side, under his arm, and all, all that kind of thing. And, and it's very nice poetry. But the literal implication of this was that she was created to be his companion, not his servant. That was very, made very clear by God. They were created with equality and complementarity. They were to be companions. Together, reflecting the image of God. The image of God is not fully reflected in the male alone or in the female alone. But in the two, the full image of God can be reflected in, obviously, Adam and Eve before they fell. And in us, as we walk with Christ, more and more, our little mirror is being polished, hopefully day by day. Now, Satan has, of course, twisted this truth. He has twisted this truth to the place where women, and specifically wives in many cultures, have been relegated to an inferior position. We've all heard the jokes out of, out of uh, Hebrew rabbi literature that I'd rather be born a dog than a woman, you know, kind of idea. It's not funny at all. It, it reflects a rabbinical concept of, of the difference between man and woman, which is not biblical. And of course, it happens to be so in almost all cultures, which are non-Christian cultures, where the, man, the male's superior physical strength has resulted in the female being relegated to an inferior position. Now, this suppression of women uh, is characteristic of nearly all heathen cultures, and even heathen homes within a Christian culture if there's such a thing as a Christian culture. I've always wondered why it was a, a female would ever want to be a Mohammedan. You know, if you've ever studied Mohammedanism, Islam, it's an all-male religion. Huh. You know, The men can have lots of wives, uh, theoretically four, but more if they want. And uh, heaven is a place where women are literally servants of the men. Why would a woman want to be... A a Mohammedan, I guess because she doesn't have much other choice in that culture. 
But as you look around the world, you discover this is the way it is. And it's only where Christianity has penetrated and Christianity has been followed according to the teachings of Jesus that women have been granted an opportunity for the equality that God intended them to have. Men. A second point, I think, that can be derived out of this, and, and this is spiritualizing a little bit, but I don't think inordinately so, as Adam's bride was literally created out of the flesh and bone of the side of Adam, so the bride of Christ has been created from the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As he died on the cross and as the blood poured out of his side and out of his hands and feet, the bride of Christ was born, was given birth, you might say. So as Adam was pierced to bring forth Eve and human existence. So Christ was pierced to bring forth the church, to bring forth spiritual life. And really, this is almost said in that many words in, we won't turn to it, but if, if you've remembered 1 Corinthians 15, 45, where it talks about Adam being the father of natural flesh and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, being the life-giving spirit. A third point, I think, important point that we can derive from this uh, passage of Genesis, as you see there, uh, three, five C, the monogamous nuclear family was God's plan and command. Because he said in verse 24 of that passage, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That is... A command. That is the way God ordered things to be. And for most of, of history, in many societies, this is, has been the ideal. Now we know that polygamy exists, polyandry, which is the opposite, concubinage, promiscuity, have been found in many cultures. Promiscuity, of course, is found in every culture, virtually. But these practices have often been viewed as deviations from the norm. Often just the privilege of the rich and the powerful. If you were to study societies where, go back to the days of the Bible, when, when Abraham had more than one wife and David had multiplied wives, which God had ordered him not to have, but he did anyway. Because that was common. But if you were to go amongst the common folk of those days, you will not find that the typical man had 18 wives as David had. You will typically find even in those cultures that there was one man or one wife in most homes. Mostly that's all they could afford. And, and that seems to be the natural process that was launched by God in the beginning and it has been viewed by man as the way it ought to be, although numerous deviations have occurred as we well know. In the monogamous nuclear family, which is also committed to Christ, of which of course there aren't a lot in the world today, the child brought up in such a home may be brought up in love and security with an understanding of what it means to be equal. Understanding what equality is all about and what is the worth of the individual. I, as an individual child, have worth. 
because of the pattern I see in my mother and my father, the love they have for each other, the love they have for God, and the love they have for me. And how they treat me equally amongst my siblings. I'm not saying that happens all the time, but, but that is the pattern that God wants to exist. And when it happens, you, you have a greater chance of a well-balanced child coming out of that. Now, obviously, there are children with genetic deficiencies, and, and who knows what they will do, you know, things that come down from past generations. But that is the best opportunity. But if you look into a bigamous or polygamous relationship, generally you're going to find that the child finds little love there because there's competition amongst the mates. If you're talking about polygamy where you have multiple wives or polyandry where you have multiple husbands, whatever the situation, uh, you've got competition there. And, of course, the children come from different fathers or mothers or whatever it is, and there's competition there. And, and there's not a sense of the security and the love that's needed. And, there, and instead of self-worth, there's competition. And unless you're the most beautiful, the most happy, the most talented, or whatever else, you're relegated as the runt of the family or whatever. And, and this commonly happens, and you have people who grow up with greatly distorted psyches. Now, Jesus used this pattern here in Genesis as the basis, or as a basis, for at least one example of his teaching on marriage. I'd like to look at that just for a moment. Matthew chapter 19, which is quite often used as a foundation for studies done on marriage from the New Testament. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any old cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined asunder <laughs> together, yeah, has joined together, let no man, woman, or anybody else separate. Now, one interesting point about this is, if, if all we're talking about here in the first part of Genesis is you know, some kind of a general truth that's being taught, and, and the passage is not to be interpreted literally, but is, is just to be looked upon as... Uh, a story made up to carry the essential truths. Why does he quote this literally? Why does Jesus himself take this passage right out of there, which is born within the context of a literal Adam and a literal Eve brought together in a literal marriage? It's, I think, very important for us to remember this one flesh concept. And it's not just in the sexual union. We're one flesh because of the commitment we have made as husband and wife to each other. And that's the way God looks at it. Just as if we had been taken out of one another as Eve was taken out of Adam. Adam. And uh, I think it's very, very important that we teach this to be true. Because it's broken down, as you well know, 
And uh, I, I don't intend to step on anybody's toes here because all kinds of problems have happened in all kinds of homes. And nobody's to point any fingers at anybody. But we know that in the church in America that the divorce rate is far higher than it was 50 years ago. I mean, when I was a young person in church, I didn't even know anybody in the church who was divorced who hadn't been divorced before they became a Christian. But now, I mean, Christians in many cases seem to be as willing to get a divorce as anybody else. You know, just they, they, they buy the world's idea that, you know, we, we are, what is it, incompatible, which is baloney. We're only incompatible by choice. We choose to be incompatible. And, of course, we have to look at this whole thing as choice all the way down the line. And, of course, that's what we're coming to as we look at chapter 3, choice that was made. Now, in verse 25 of this passage, we see that Adam and Eve were stark naked. And they were perfectly at ease. There was absolutely nothing shameful about their bodies as they stood in one another's presence. They had complete love and respect for each other. And, and literally were totally free from any kind of an evil thought because there were no such things as evil thoughts yet. Evil had not entered the world. Therefore, neither had fear of exploitation by the other. Any kind of exploitation. Not possible. Because they had total, complete respect and love for each other. And so they could stand in each other's presence, stark naked, and not feel any kind of shame. Now, clothing is worn, generally speaking, for one of three reasons, as I have listed there at the end of the outline. We wear clothing for protection. And you go outside today, and you better believe we wear clothes for protection. We wear them for ornamentation. And some of our ornaments are a little bit silly. <laughs> and we wear them for modesty. Not all do we wear clothes for modesty. Some clothes is very immodest. None of the reasons given there would have entered Adam and Eve's mind. As they stood there, no sinful thoughts, total mutual love and respect, no concern about modesty, and, and, and certainly no ornamentation. I mean, what are you going to hang on a perfect human body that's going to enhance it? And no need for protection because the environment was perfect. The weather was absolutely ideal. And there were no thorns and thistles and, and things that would cause harm. There were no snakes and chiggers. None of these things were there, at least not in a harmful way yet, if they were. And so none of those reasons would cause them to need clothes. But with the coming of sin, we're going to discover that the environment began to change. And it began to become quite hostile to human beings. And as a result, the need for clothing for protection began to develop. And we know today, uh, we run all the way from, from people who run around in fursuits, covering all but the little bit of their face, almost all year round to, to people who do still run around stark naked in parts of the world where the climate still allows that. 
I think I mentioned to you before that if you take a climate map and, and you look at the various designations for climates, you'll discover that A is used for the tropical climates, and that's usually colored red or pink on, on, a, on a climate map. And the line between A and whatever climate happens to be next to it, let's say it's a C climate or, or possibly a B climate, that is often called the closed line, meaning that within the, the, the A climate, you really don't need clothes for protection. The weather is warm enough, it, it almost never freezes in that kind of a climate, uh, that you don't really need clothes. Beyond that, you need clothes for protection. Whether it's in the desert, maybe warm enough in the desert, but it'll kill you. <laughs> I read an article a while back said that if you were to be taken out into most warm deserts on a cloudless day, without any clothes or without any protection, you wouldn't survive one day because the sun would destroy you if you had no place, if you had no clothes and no place to hide in, its sh in, in shadow. If you were in it, exposed to its rays all day long, it would kill you. Of course, some of us don't believe that, and we go out and lay all afternoon in our almost next to nothing uh, in front of the sun. Fortunately, it's not the desert sun, probably. Close to it here, though. <laughs> also, of course, after the fall, mankind became very competitive, and as a result, one of the results anyway, ornamentation began to be added. We want to be like the animals, you know. Peacock, with this big feather display to attract his mate. So we start putting on things to uh, make us attractive. Finally, uh, Satan focused human attention on the sexual drive and enticed men and women to replace love with lust. And thus, clothing was required to provide for modesty, and to help to reduce the temptation to animal-like behavior. And you and I well know that in our society today, we have people who publicly describe practices which I think would make most animals, if they're aware of it, choke. And uh, that, of course, indicates the great depth of our degradation. Well, let's turn to the next passage in Genesis, which describes how this decline began. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This will be page 11 of your outline now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he, that is the serpent, said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 
Now, as we look at this, I, first of all, let's eradicate, if you have any of these pictures in your mind that sometimes come, that, that Satan was, looks like a hooded cobra hissing these words out. You know, Hirkase. Now, we have, to, we have to see this thing in reality. Uh, he was a gorgeous creature, just fabulous, most beautiful thing in the whole garden, probably. No wicked hooded cobra here. Now, first of all, there's no indication how much time has passed between the end of Genesis uh, chapter 2 and the beginning of Genesis 3. No indication at all as to the time frame. Did Adam and Eve enjoy a few days, a few weeks, a few months in their pristine innocence? Now, we have one indicator here that might help us. And that indicator is that it is not until Genesis 4.1 that we're told that Eve becomes pregnant. You might say, what kind of an indicator is that? Well, thinking about the situation, that's probably a pretty good indicator. First of all, they were perfect. There was absolutely nothing before they fell to hinder everything functioning absolutely as it was intended to function. So I don't believe that it would have been very long before Eve would have become pregnant. Probably within a matter of a few days. <laughs> or weeks, maybe, but most likely a few days. I mean, God was in control of that, obviously. But I think that indicates that the time passed was not really very long between the end of Genesis 2 and the beginning of Genesis now, we read at the end of Genesis chapter 1, in verse 31, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. At the end of the sixth day, God pronounced everything perfect. And if God pronounced it very good, what would we say? With our finite minds and, and abilities. Obviously, it was absolutely a masterpiece without the slightest hint of imperfection anywhere. Now, we are not able to explain how all that would be. How, how would we explain the stars and the sun and all these things under that kind of a condition? You and I know that, for example, the sun is converting from hydrogen to helium at a certain rate. I don't remember what that rate is. But uh, ultimately, one day, according to... Uh, astronomers, our sun will become a nova and will, you know, get real big and, and ultimately go out, more or less. Something like 10 or 20 billion years from now, so we don't really have to hold our breath worrying about it. But the point is, the sun is running out, wearing down, using up its fuel. Now, how the sun could have existed before that without that being true, I don't know. Uh, God is perfectly capable of creating a steady state situation. What do we call this? Uh, what do you call it when something can continue to operate with seemingly no loss of energy? Perpetual motion. With God, perpetual motion or anything of that sort is totally possible. And, and the whole idea of decay and running down seems to be a post-fall situation. The earth was perfect, therefore. There wasn't a problem anywhere with anything be it in the heavens above or on earth below, or within the human being itself. There was no pollution, no disease, 
No struggle for life. No survival of the fittest. And there was no death. If none of these things occurred, obviously, as we have pointed out before, evolution is impossible. Without things dying, you can't possibly have evolution. How different, of course, that is from the world which you and I live in today, in which death is everywhere, and decay is all around us, and even in us, and corruption on every hand. And the Bible even gives, Paul gives a kind of a lamenting, but, of course, statement of great hope relative to that in the 8th chapter of Romans, which certainly we've read many times. In Romans 8.20, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. That is, God allowed all this decay and corruption to, to come about in hope of, of course, an ultimate change one day that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the, ch the pains of childbirth together until now. And of course, you've all, as I have, watched the, uh, the Disney nature or National Geographic nature stories about everything eating everything else, you know, and the violence that goes on in your lawn, which you don't even see, you know, unless you've had seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> then you have some kind of ideal of violence that goes on in your lawn. But, but all of this violence is occurring all the way around the world, and, and there's just pain and death and suffering and dying everywhere. And it occurs in us. And, and, you know, all of us are old enough to, to think about how quickly a generation passes. And, and those of us who have children, we think, oh my goodness, it, was, it just seemed like yesterday that I was the age of my youngest child. My baby is 21. It doesn't seem so long ago that I was 21. It really wasn't, but <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem so long ago. And, and, you know, you think about the fact that your babies have babies, and suddenly your grandparents, and, and lo and behold, down the line, you're a great-grandparent. How terrible. And, you know, it, how quickly the generations go by. And we look at ourselves in the mirror, and it's almost like I'm not the same person. Of course, fortunately, it happens slowly, so we adjust to it. But uh, we look at the pictures of, of what we were like when we were 20, and we say, hmm, there's been some change. It's an example of this corruption and decay which has entered earth. And you and I as Christians, as well as the whole creation, groan awaiting the coming of our Lord, awaiting the restoring touch of the Creator. God did not create you and me for futility. He created us for hope that one day we will no longer decay and corrupt as we do. We will be in perfection as God intended us to be to begin with. Now, why is there this decay? What happened to God's perfect creation? Well, there's another verse in, Gen in Romans, which kind of nails it right on the head. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, it doesn't say there in Romans, just as through man, it says through one man. And the implication is that Paul believed in a literal Adam as a single individual. My feeling is if Paul believed that, and if statements that Christ made referring to specifically a person called Adam, I had better believe that, no matter what science tries to tell me. I had better not believe it metaphorically. I had better believe it literally. There was a single individual called Adam who had a single wife called Eve. They were real human beings, and they are the progenitors of the human race. The Bible believes and teaches that, not just in Genesis chapter 1. My opinion on the whole thing is, if we start becoming metaphorical about the early part of Genesis, where do we stop? Where do we draw the line? Where do we say this is literal? I mean, there are many who, not a whole lot, but there are those who, who believe that Jesus himself was just sort of a made-up person. Just like there are some people who, who do not believe there was a literal Homer or a literal Shakespeare. But they were sort of a you know, generic thing. There are people who will doubt anything, obviously. But through Adam and Eve, sin entered this creation and brought about the destruction of earthly paradise. In the created order, which we read about in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, only Adam and Eve had the power of choice in the moral and spiritual realm. Now, animals, true, had a power of choice in terms of the physical realm. They could choose to eat this or eat that, or sleep here or sleep there, or to jump in the river or not jump in the river. But only man has the power of moral and spiritual choice. Thus, the future of the whole created order rested upon mankind's choice, whether Adam and Eve would obey or disobey. Everything hung on that. Now, I don't want to jump off into an Arminian or Calvinist camp here one way or the other, but there's no doubt about the fact God gave to Adam and Eve choice. And if you talk to a strict modern-day Calvinist, they will tell you, yes, Adam and Eve were the last people who had choice. And ever since that time, nobody's had choice. You know, God has foreordained everything. We walk in a groove. If Adam and Eve had chosen to obey God, paradise would have been retained. Since they chose to disobey, paradise was lost. And I suppose it becomes an exercise in futility to try to dream up what the world would be like had they not sinned. Would we be here? Well, we certainly wouldn't be what we're like now if we were here. Would the world have existed? You know, I don't know. There's no way of knowing. God knew exactly what would happen. He created the world anyway. Now, who was this enemy that brought this all about? Genesis 3.1 simply says that refers to a creature called the serpent. Nachash, serpent. We read in the passage that it says that this serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, or than any beast of the field. The implication is of any other beast of the field. 
He had something, in other words, that other animals apparently did not have. This seems to be the statement made. It seems to be a statement of exclusivity. He was endowed with this attribute, which the Hebrew calls arum. Now, arum is not itself a negative term. It can be interpreted positively or negatively. And personally, I believe that as God created the serpent, since, since everything was perfect, that the serpent was created with a room in the positive sense. Let's look at Proverbs where the word is used, one of the places at least, where it's used in the positive sense. Uh, chapter 14, I just, I just picked some verses. There are many verses where this word is used, particularly in Proverbs. Proverbs 14, verse 8. The wisdom of the prudent... And there is a, a form of the, of the word arum, is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Verse 15, the naive believes everything, but the one with arum considers his steps. Verse 18, the naive inherit folly, but the one with arum, the ones with arum are crowned with knowledge. So the term can be a very positive term, and it's not a bad thing, necessarily. And I think this was the quality that the serpent had. God had created this being with prudence, more than any other animal, wild animal. Now, I'm assuming simply because of later statements in Genesis 1 that we're talking about a created creature not a specific form that the enemy himself, you know, concocted. Now, the negative use of the term is as we find it here in Genesis 1. It can be used or it can be defined as crafty, shrewd, cunning, which, which all, those terms all have a negative implication to them. Now, you and I are well aware of the fact that good attributes can be perverted. It happens all the time. We've allowed, possibly, a good attribute in our life to be perverted. God builds in us, for example, the desire to provide for our family, but that can be perverted to the point where we become acquisitive and greedy. And there are numerous examples that we can use. So I think we can view this creature as having been given a certain quality that the other creatures didn't have that Satan will pervert to his use. Now, some commentators see a word play here between Genesis 2.25 and uh, 3.1. Because in, in Genesis 2.25, it says, the man and his wife were both arumim, which is naked, implying that they were innocent and unsuspecting of foul play, whereas the serpent was arum, crafty, ready to lay a trap. So it's like they were the opposite, that, that nakedness implied, well, negatively, we could say naivety, but innocence. But the serpent was not innocent. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to trap them. And so they, they see this wordplay between the arumim and the arum of these two verses. Now, you and I, I think, are fully aware of the fact that no animal no matter how wise or how cunning, could have tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. 
cat or a dog or whatever. No animal is going to be able to cause a perfect man, a perfect woman to fail. It's obvious in this passage that some of the battle occurred in the fleshly appetites, but that's not where the real key battle took place. The principal battle was fought in the moral and spiritual realms. And no mere animal has a spirit. Therefore, no animal can tempt us in the spiritual realm. That is, could not tempt them in the spiritual realm. So the animal had to be possessed by a spiritual being. Now, in the Genesis passage, the being is not named. Some commentators like to indicate that maybe Moses didn't know his name. Huh. I don't think that's true at all. There are numerous passages in the Scripture, however, that make it clear who this being was. And I've just given you some. And let's, uh, for a moment, turn to Revelation chapter 12, where we have really a direct reference back to Genesis 3. Revelation 12, 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. And now we're, we're told who this great dragon was or is. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels thrown down with him. Then the 20th chapter, verses 1 and 2. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the, the clear reference here, the serpent of old. Who is the serpent of old? Well, the serpent in Eden is the clear implication here. From the final book of Scripture to the beginning book of Scripture, you have this through-the-ages reference, this serpent of old, who's called the dragon because of his serpent-like qualities. A, a dragon looks a lot like a serpent, <laughs> whatever a dragon is. We know that... Uh, we, we constantly picture a dragon as sort of a fire-breathing lizard, maybe with wings. But who's seen a dragon? We've all seen the monitors, and some of those big things look like an overgrown lizard, like a giant iguana. But what's a dragon? Well, the, the word uh, is very, very similar. The word for dragon is basically the same word as for serpent. He's also called the devil, which means accuser and Satan, which means the adversary. So the serpent of old is defined as the devil and as Satan. I think because of the time we'll have to leave it there, even though I don't like to, uh, we need to discover who the scripture says Satan is. And I, I know you all know, but it's good for us, I think, to review and go back to the Old Testament uh, prophetic passages, which I think... Uh, give us a key to understanding what happened here in the garden and how it took place. And so we'll look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel uh, 28 next week, which I think gives us some good understanding of this.